Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, hey, what's going on? Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning, and I want to jump right into this week's episode because I have someone I've been really excited to chat with for quite a long time, and I can't believe we have him on the show. Today, this week, we are talking about leadership and leadership from a place of crisis, leadership from a place of unknown, and ultimately leadership from a place of your heart. With me today is Joel K. Manby. Now, Joel, you may not have heard his name, although you may have. He's a best-selling author. He's done many great things, um, not just limited to being the CEO and president for SeaWorld organization for, you know, SeaWorld, the $1.4 billion entertainment company with SeaWorld Parks, Bush Gardens, Discovery Cove, and all the theme parks. You know, we spent so much time uh, when we lived in California bringing uh, our little son Val when he was one, two years old to SeaWorld. We had the whole annual pass. So I'm excited to chat about the transformation process they had to go through under his leadership. Um, you've seen him on Undercover Boss in the first season. Go back and look at season one, episode six. You've seen Joel going when he worked as the CEO for Hershey Enterprises, another theme park uh, uh, style company. He's also worked and led in the, in the auto industry, general management in, for General Motors, working in Saturn and Saab divisions. And he's also the CEO of Saab Automotive USA, um, during which the sales results went crazy higher than 50 year highs in their US history. He has an MBA from Harvard Business School. The list goes on and on of what this man's done over the last several decades. But before I get too ahead of myself, welcome, Joel. Are you there, my friend? I am, Matt. It's so good to be on. I've been a, I've been a fan. I, I love the fact you're in Grand Rapids. I grew up in Battle Creek, so we're Michiganders. Look at that. That's an inside term that not everybody knows. No, I mean, so in the mitten, uh, they, no one can see my hand, but you're, you're down kind of a little down this way. We're up a little yes. bit. Everyone in Michigan just shows you their hand and show and tells you where they are geographically. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's hard to do the Upper Peninsula, but we do the lower really well. Yeah, yeah. You have to use the other hand for that. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so Joel, you uh, we've been chatting uh, a little bit just before we went on here, and uh, I didn't get a lot though from your background before you got into all this. Were you a guy that did you always know you were going to Harvard Business School? Did you want to get into you know, leadership and corporate work that way. What were you like as a kid? And what was that leadership style? What did you think you were going to be doing? Oh my gosh. That's, you know, I really thought I was going to be a pro baseball player. Even through college, I, uh, I went to college to play baseball and football, but I was a better baseball player. Hey, Joel, and real I actually, quick. 
Yes. Sorry. Uh, I think the internet is getting a little funky as we start talking. So let's go ahead and turn the video off just to save that so we get the best possible quality. Okay. All right. So how do I do that? Just stop video. That's it. No. That's it. Just hit stop video. There you go. What a handsome right. devil. Uh, I apologize at, for that. Okay, we should be good after this. So I'm just going to clap. Adam, who's the Adam guy on the great singer? You've heard that before. Who? Adam Lambert, is it? The guy who's with, he's on The the Voice. And Levine? Just, yeah. That's who oh, hey man, I received that. <laughs> that's a big compliment. Yeah, I've never had that. That's a good looking young man. All right, three, <laughs> three, two, right. one. So Joel, when you were growing up, tell me a little bit about that. Were you, did you think you were going to get into like corporate leadership and kind of climbing the ladder? Were you more entrepreneurial? Um, tell me a little bit about kind of you growing up and what did you think you were going to get into, you know, as you graduate high school and whatnot? Yeah. Well, I was very entrepreneurial from a business standpoint. I'd mow people's lawns or sell lemonade and just always trying to make a, a little cash, but primarily I thought I was going to be a baseball player. And it's a, it's actually a funny story. I, I played all through college and I, I, I was, I played against Michigan state and they were recruiting Kirk Gibson who played for the Tigers and the Dodgers. And, but I had a great game. And so they invited me, even though I was from a division three school to a tryout camp and I made the cut, the running cut and the throwing cut from 300 down to 10 people but then he had to face the pitchers who threw 90 plus on the gun. And I never even fought off a pitch. I was like a ceiling fan up there just whiffing away. So I never got any more calls from scouts. And at that point, literally as a senior in high school, I knew I had to you know, go on to business school. I did well academically. Um, so I, they, I just, Harvard said, you got to work for two years first and then you can come to our business school. And, and then I decided to, go into business, but I can't say that that was a goal from as a kid. I, I'll tell you what really drove me though, Matt, and probably a lot of your listeners and entrepreneurs can relate to this. My, I grew up very poor my dad failed in his business. And then he, he got laid off from a factory job at 45 and he never really got a, another real job again, just mowing lawns. And we were, we were quite poor and kind of working poor. And I was just driven not to have money be the arguing flashpoint in my family because every fight in between my mom and dad, which they didn't fight aggressively, but the tension in our family was all about lack of money. So that also drove me as an entrepreneur. And I'm not necessarily proud of that. I'm not saying, I don't think that's right. I wouldn't encourage it, but that's the answer to your question. Wow. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I, I find it fascinating how many of us, are driven either towards or away what we're watching dad do or what we're watching, you know, as the family grows up, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And early on, I found a way to make money. And I was like, Oh, this is the answer. Um, so you, you know, you, you get out and you decide you're not, of course, going down the baseball track. Um, what led you to, to business school? Was there, was there some kind of a, a turning point where you're like, well, I guess if I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do that. You know, it was a mentor, Matt, that, my economics teacher at Alvin College said, you have, because I never dreamed I had that kind of capability. Um, and he said, you have the capability to go to a top-notch Ivy League, Stanford, Harvard, Wharton. You need to apply. You need to try. And he, he wanted me to go for the Rhodes Scholarship. I was a finalist there, but didn't, didn't get the Rhodes, but was close. So if, he, if it wasn't that mentor saying, you can do it. I'm not sure I ever would have applied. And I just knew I wanted to go to the best school I could get into. 
um, and then go from there. So I would encourage anybody on your, your listening group, even though we want to be entrepreneurs, we want to be successful. I think I, I, encouraging other people who work for you, helping them in their careers is just a real, it's a real gift. And I try to give back now the same way that guy gave to me and encourage me to go bigger and farther. That's a, an, incredible. Um, could you distill maybe a lesson you learned going through getting into an Ivy League big business school? So I think some people, you know, that's, for me, that was always way off my track. I thought, oh, I, I, that's not me, right? And, and looking back now, you know, 20 some years later, I think that actually could have been me and that might be, have been very, very helpful. But in my mind, I just thought, no way. Could you distill a lesson or two that you gained from whether it was understanding how you got in, what you learned while you were there, or something that you've taken with you since the college days and you've been using in business and using in leadership ever since? That's a great question, Matt, because the biggest thing I learned is that I, I can do it. And I, I was intimidated by it. Like I said, if my professor had never told me to do it, I wouldn't have done it. When I got in, I felt like maybe I was the admissions mistake. I didn't have the confidence. <laughs> you know, um, I'm the but, exception. Well, quick story. When we went around the classroom to introduce ourselves, the backgrounds of the people in that room were so impressive, it would blow you away. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm from Battle Creek. I've been a plant foreman in a GM plant for two years. This is not going to sound impress, impressive. So when they came to me, I just said, well, my name's Joel Manby. My claim to fame is I guarded Magic Johnson in the high school basketball game, and I held him to 62 points. <laughs> and that, what a celebrity basketball player you are. Well, yeah, Johnson Magic played in uh, Lansing. I'm from Battle Creek, but but I, that, that just points to the intimidation. So what I learned coming out because I ended up doing incredibly well, uh, kind of top ten percent. And you know, when you go in there, you think all the people from New York and Goldman Sachs they seem so much smarter because they talk faster and they they're from New York. What I found is if you're just a good solid thinker, you're good and you're good to other people. Over the two-year period, those fast talkers kind of faded, and those who were just solidly there every day and said wise things made it to the top, and, and it, it gave me confidence that I could get into any environment with the most competitive situations and, and do well in it. And that's the biggest thing I learned, honestly. Very, that's actually quite insightful. Um, I, I think I definitely need that lesson, too. You know, just realizing that if I want to do it, I know I can. I got to figure out how. Um, I want to talk about you getting into the automotive industry. And I think that this for me is really fascinating because I know you, you know, after um, Harvard Business School, well, actually you were working for General Motors. Um, you get your degree. Um, you're working on that Saturn. And by the way, my first new car was a Saturn SC1, that, that two-door or the three-door coupe, right? There were three doors with that weird little suicide door in the back. Um, but I got that at 18 years old and I saved up and I got a loan and I went and I got my, I got my new Saturn. Um, when you're in this place, you are working your way up, so to speak. Right. Um, I remember seeing this meme where this, this, uh, dad asked his kid, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he saw all these, you know, the CEO, the entrepreneur, the business owners, you know, golfing and hanging out, having a good time. And he said, you know, I really want to get into CEOing dad. <laughs> like that, that's going to be my thing. <laughs> and you, you got into CEOing, um, but it wasn't very short. Like you took a few years, you're working with Saturn and then eventually you get appointed as CEO of Saab uh, USA 
through General Motors. Tell me a little bit about the, the process of getting a job, starting there, um, whether it's what was the work ethic like? What was your attitude like? What did it take to start the promotion process to eventually move into a CEO position? Was it people seeing leadership in you? Were you going the extra mile for things? Was it just like, how did that actually happen? Well, for those who work for other people on, that are listening that aren't running their own entrepreneurial thing, um, I, I would say, first of all, I never set out to be a CEO. I just set out that in everything I did, I worked really, really hard. Um, if I, I, I was not always the smartest guy in the room, so I outworked everybody and really loved the business. What Saturn was trying to do was revolutionize the car business to have it be a great buying experience. And I hated buying cars and I loved Saturn's mission to treat people with respect and dignity and, and don't lie to them about the price and don't lie to them about the trade-in and so on and so forth. So I loved the mission and it made me work really hard towards the mission, which is very important. But the main thing is I never set out to be a, a, a CEO. I just promotions came to me. And eventually, because Saturn was so successful in building a brand, a brand new brand within the auto industry, and was known for guest service, I was very lucky and fortunate to get the CEO job of Saab when I was only about 30. I was 35, which is very young within the GM system. Um, and it's because of my Saturn background. And uh, then from for Saab, it was just working day and night to, to turn that thing around. Um, but I, I will say at GM, I learned also a lot of kind of bad leadership style is very fear-based, very autocratic. And through that whole experience, I kept thinking there has to be a better way to lead. There has to be a way that you can treat people with more dignity and respect and still get great results. And what I'm seeing in this industry is it's very fear-based and, and as I said, autocratic. Um, and so that was another learning. And so, um, and can you give an example of like fear-based leadership in, and maybe just call it manufacturing in general or automotive in general, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack any industry or company, but can you give me an example of like fear-based leadership and what turned you off from there? Well, it was in two regards. One, it was definitely blue collar versus white collar. And I, I did not like that. Um, the union did set up kind of an adversarial relationship with management. I felt like management should be able to go in and just talk with the workers. And, but of course there's been abuse over the years, the other way. And that's what drove unions to happen. But I, my dad was blue collar and my dad was union. So I had a natural affinity there and just didn't like this barrier that created this friction and this tension that was unnecessary to me. Um, the other thing was leaders who basically just would you know yell at you and, and uh, a lot of cursing and cussing in the in the boardroom or in the meetings, just saying if you don't f and hit your numbers, you're out of here. Or you know you got you got two weeks to turn it around, or we'll find somebody who can. Just stuff like that that would happen on a regular basis. That it was it was just basically you you hit the numbers or you're out. But there was not a lot of coaching and mentoring of we're going to help you make that number, except for at Saturn. I would say. I'm talking about the rest of General Motors versus Saturn specifically had a great culture uh, within a pretty, pretty tough one. 
I remember too, like when Saturn came on the scene, it, it definitely as a consumer, not knowing anything about the industry, it definitely felt like a separate child. You know, it was a separate company. It was a separate brand. And I remember thinking it was a separate feel, right? And I just intuitively knew it like 17, 18 years old that not knowing about business, but I knew that everything was ran separately. You could tell the the culture is different. And You're I think, right. you know, what you just said too, does not age well. Like, you know, I realized a lot of companies were like that back in the day. Some industries are definitely still have a lot of that flair. Would you say, and this might not be a fair question I'm going to ask anyway, would you say, let's say if, if the barrier could be down between, as you said, the, the blue and white collar, if you had good leadership and if you had the open communication channels and all the things that, you know, you're implementing through, especially to your, with your new book, Love Works, if that leadership was really integrated do you believe there'd still be a need for unions? Would that go away? Or will there always be a need for unions, even if the cultures become extra positive and supportive, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'm sure, depending on the listener, it's not a popular answer. But no, I don't think there is a need for unions if, if the leaders practice compassionate leadership, compassionate capitalism. And that's what Love Works is all about. When, and we'll get to that. But when I went to the theme park industry and learned Love Works, it was the answer to that angst I was feeling all these years feeling things could be done better. But, but it's because there has been leaders that don't lead that way and they do abuse workers or they do take advantage of them and they do underpay them. Right. And that creates the need. But to, to answer your question, no, I don't believe, I, th- I believe unions are irrelevant in the right culture. And that's why you're seeing them die over time. Cause I think this, fear-based autocratic culture is starting to die over time, but still exists in pockets. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, you watch like how many industries, the restaurant industry in different places don't have unions. And, you know, I don't want to get down that track, but I, I agree with you. I think there's many solutions to a problem. And that was a solution that was put in place at a certain time. Um, but certainly if the cultures shift and change, which they are in a lot of industries, you, you know, you might find a, a no need for that. If people aren't being taken advantage of, why do you need the regulation in place? But from there you get, did you get like kind of poached to, uh, to Hershend? Tell me this idea, like you went and worked as a CEO in a major theme park company for 10 years. Um, and I want to get to all of that, but how in the world do you make the transition from, leading in manufacturing automotive to leading in theme parks, entertainment industry. They're two drastically different industries. Did you intentionally go in there? How would they come and find you if they did? Um, How in the world do you get known in a completely entirely different industry? It's it's a obvious, it's a great question. And kind of when you look at my resume, you think what the heck happened? Um, Basically I did not seek it out and it came out of a desperately dark, situation for me, which to, to those of you listening, I would encourage all of you in your thirties and forties, you will go through a dark time. I've actually gone through two really, really dark times in my life, but out of them have always come better things. And you just have to hang in there. And what happened with us is, uh, I, I had an incident at Saab where I got chastised publicly in, in front of my peer group. And I had a flight to Sweden. It was just a horrible incident. And it was an example of fear-based intimidation culture. And flying back from Sweden, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this and I'm open to a new opportunity. And literally within a week, I, I was pulled away to 
an Amazon startup, which we sold cars on Amazon back in 1999, 2000, before the, the, the dot-com implosion. I was actually in quite a few meetings with Jeff Bezos and have some pictures with him. It's kind of fun now to look back that I'm standing with the richest man in the world. But um, those are stories in them themselves. But we got caught up in the implosion and we were forced to sell to a competitor. I still frankly think that's the right idea. Amazon should get into that business. They would own it. They'd work through dealers to deliver cars, but we were way ahead of our time. And as entrepreneurs know, you can get arrows in your back by being too far ahead of the curve. And that's a learning in and of itself. Yeah. Great but metaphor. I, yeah. It's, it's uh, but I was already on the board, Matt of Hershen entertainment. I was a board member and I was at Amazon trying to sell this small entity company and Jack Hershen, who was the CEO of Hershen Entertainment and the chairman calls me and says, we love you as a board member. We want to recruit you in to be chairman. And literally, Matt, he had been the only chairman for the 50 year history of that company. So it was a huge honor. And what I would call for, you know, I, I am a man of faith myself. And so I, I think it's either a God thing or a miracle, whatever people want to call it, that this happened because for 20 years, like I told you, I, I thought there was a better way. And when I came to Hirsch Entertainment, there, there was a better way. And that's what Love Works is all about. Um, but before we go to Love Works and what, what I learned there, one really important lesson, I think, for your listeners that I learned making this dramatic switch is when I was in the auto industry, I, I felt I knew most about it because I had been a I had been I actually owned dealerships for a while, then went back and ran the wholesale side, which is like the manufacturing side. I felt I knew the whole industry, so I led in a very different way. I was much more uh, direct, autocratic, not fear based, but I felt I had to know everything. And and as I matured and came to Hershen, I had to go from an autocratic style to a Socratic style where. People around me knew more about the business than I did. So I learned to ask really, really good questions. And what I found is that I was attracting better people, keeping better people, because great, great leaders really don't love to be told what to do. And if you ask great questions and train them to think well, then you can grow and scale. And that's what we did at Hershen. So it was a valuable lesson on leadership and how to lead that so many people feel they can't go into other businesses. And I would tell you, you can, and you might even lead better when you're getting into something you don't know enough about. And it's, it's counterintuitive, but at least I found that to be true. It actually makes perfect sense. Let me ask you a, off the top of your head question. If you had to guess, what percentage of similarities to running the two different industry businesses in your position, how similar is it versus how different is it? I find that, you know, I, I ran a mortgage business and real estate business for years. I run a coaching business, you know, writing and, and speaking and so forth. And I find that they're probably 95% similar. 5% mm -hmm. is the content where, you know, I sell different items, but everything else, whether it's, it's HR, it's leadership, it's it, running teams, all the rest of it is basically the same. What would you say with those two different industries? I would agree with you. I'm not sure I could add a lot more other than great leadership or good leadership is good leadership. And I have found most great leaders have always been leaders. Like um, I've always been captains of my football teams, baseball teams. I tend to lead naturally. You put me in a group of people and I'm the one that's, you know, drawn up the plays in the sand or, and it's just the way it, 
is. I, I do think leaders can be trained and taught, but I also think there's an instinctive personality type that just leads. And to your point, I don't, there, there were many similarities between autos and theme parks because they're consumer-based businesses. You create a great guest experience, you win, and you have to have your frontline employees, whether it's a theme park or a, a dealership or a plant factory, those experiences will never, the, the end experience of the consumer will never rise higher than the enthusiasm and excellence of the employees within. And so that was very similar. So culture. Can and you health, say that one more time? Cause that was so profound. The, the level of guest experience can never rise any higher than the level of enthusiasm of your own employees. So Guys, what, write that down on a whole page, pull over and write that down. That is, that's well, a principle I can bring to every area of my business. Well, you think about it. It what baffled me is I'd go into these auto meetings and they beat the living daylights out of me verbally. And then they say, go out and get great guest experience. So you'd go back to the plant floor. You know, it's pretty hard to motivate hardcore union guys if, you know, you're just gotten your butt chewed out for an hour in a meeting. So I never understood the inconsistency. And at Hershen, we actually put more focus on how our employees were treated than even our guests because the front line on a theme park experience, again, it never rises higher than the, their own enthusiasm. So we focused really hard on how those frontline people were treated. And we had incredibly low turnover and incredibly high guest engagement scores. So let me ask you this then. Now, I, I know you, um, when you got called into Undercover Boss, and that's a show that I've loved for years, and you were actually in the first season of Undercover Boss when you were with Hershen uh, Entertainment. First quick question is, and I don't have this in my research, but how many theme parks in total were you over at that time? Yeah, we had, we had 11 parks, but we had 21 uh, different properties. Lots of some small things like some dinner theaters. Sure. The Dolly uh, Parton uh, Entertainment. Dolly, all of Dolly's parks, which by the way, Dolly's just wonderful human being and with her four times a year. And she's fantastic. What you see is what you get. Um, She's fantastic. But we we own the Harlem Globetrotters, some other businesses people would have heard of. A lot of stuff in Branson, Missouri. Um, so just a huge uh, amount. About a hundred. Let me okay. see. We probably had twelve thousand. Sorry, go ahead. You had twelve thousand. I was just saying you have a huge amount of about play 12, in the entertainment world. Yes. Oh, we or, had and we had it was I think, I think we're lagging for a couple of seconds. I'm just going to quickly take a pause. I'm sorry, Joel. I think we just had something. Yeah, there we go. I think we're back on. Are we back? Yeah. I'm All back. right. There's nothing, there's nothing like having a fun conversation that turns into nothing but interruptions. Cause you have a two second lag. We're good. All right. All right. Let's go right back to that. Three, two, one. So when, when you're with these guys that you have 11 theme parks and multiple properties, entertainment franchises, you have the Harlem Globetrotters, you have all these things. When you get called an undercover boss, um, what, again, what were some of the, tell me a little, maybe a, you have any interesting stories about your time in there? What positions did you run? And what were some maybe high level principles that you, you realized while you're going through that process? Because I know it's a TV show and they, you know, they make it up a little more dramatic maybe. But I also know that that was a big turning point for you in yes. your leadership, wasn't it? 
Yeah. I, and I could, I could tell some small stories that are kind of funny what happened, but I think the, the big applicable point for all your listeners is I thought I was the only one that maybe felt the way I did about the, the angst of leadership and that people should be treated better. What I found within Hershen is people were treated well, but, and that was no surprise. But then after the show ended and Matt, when we, when it was run, we were lucky in that it followed the NCAA quarterfinals on TV. So 20 million people stayed on and watched my show or our show. And I was inundated. I, I still have a whole bookcase full of printed letters, emails, faxes, and I could not believe what I got, which was consistently, I wish our company had a culture like Hershend. I wish my boss treated me like people at Hershend. I'm frustrated. Why aren't leaders better? And I realized, Matt, we had a leadership crisis in this country. And I always thought it was just kind of how I felt. So the big thing for me that came out of Undercover Bosses, Love Works, or the culture of Hershend should be taught other places because it does work. And so that was the impetus for me to even write a book. Because what happened is the Hershend enterprise was, again, run by Jack for so many years. And all your inter entrepreneurs will understand this. It's the culture of the company was the owner and the leader. And that's fine for a number of years. It's usually a visionary who comes in and, you know, they have an operator that gets things done. And that's the culture. And it can be incredibly good. It can be not so good. But to, in order to scale and grow fast, you have to put a culture mechanism in place. So my job after Undercover Boss, Jack said, you know what? I, I want you to put a vernacular to this. I want you to try to create our culture in a systematic way. So what Love Works is, is basically taking our culture and putting it into behaviors at how we want people to treat each other. Because Matt, everybody has what I would call do goals. You've got to have, you've got to make so many talks a year and so many listeners uh, sure. have to have sales and results and margin. Everybody does that. But what Love Works is about is be goals. What kind of leader do we want in our organization? What, how do we want them to be or behave? And so we literally took seven words of love, which happened to be out of first Corinthians. It is, it, ours were out of the Bible because our owners were Christians, but for your listeners, it doesn't have to be those seven words, but there has to be some focus on how people are treated. And then the key is putting systems in place behind it to back it up. So it becomes just as important as the do goals. And that's where the art and the systems come in. It's, it's art and science. But that's really the biggest thing that came out of Undercover Boss. Yeah, it's, it, it, how incredible. A lot, to, a lot to unpack. But what I want to talk about is one thing most importantly is you talked about the principles and then the systems to back it up. I think as whether it's as a family, like my wife and her nine-year-old son, Val, and I, uh, my wife, Lola, we sit down as a family team and we come up with what are our family values? What are our family principles? Why, you know, why did God put us on the earth? What are we here to impact? And there's a huge difference between the intangible, these are the principles I want to follow. I want to be love. Uh, I want to be patient. And you have like in your book here, part two is love defined. And I love that because if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard, you know, 
even if you never read the Bible, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't keep a right, uh, wrongdoings, a record of wrongs. And you decide, let's take these principles and let's apply them to the business. But you also come up with a system of how do you live that out? How do you implement that? How, if we're going to be kind or if we're going to be trusting, what does trust look like in practicality, right? Like if we're going to trust our team members, how do we trust our team members? Not just let's trust them. Can you, can you give me an example maybe of and just, just one or so of a principle that you have and then maybe a practical way that you implemented that with the team? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I'll give, I'll give two and Oh, uh, yeah. we're going bonus credit here. This is I, great. I, I unpack it, of course, for each word in the book, but, but I'd love to have time to talk about the processes too. So I'll just, let's say trusting so many leaders, including myself, I think, Oh yeah, I trust my people. Um, I know they won't steal from me or lie to me, but that's not what we're talking about here. Trusting here is delegating. And that means making, there's an example of a RASI chart in the book where who's responsible, who has to approve it, who has to be consulted, who has to be informed. And it takes a little time to set up, but it allows better delegation to other people. And then leaders, we hold them accountable versus telling them what to do all the time. And just, just do what I say and not listen to them. Because if you don't listen, you're not really trusting them. And if you interrupt them, you're not really trusting them. So there's a whole unpacking of what does it mean as a leader to trust? Um, another example is truthfulness. Uh, what, if you're really going to be truthful to people, there has to be a methodology of doing that. At Hershen, we happen to use, I want more of, less of, or same as from you. And when we sat down with somebody on a regular basis, we gave them a lot of positive, but we also gave them the negative. And we tried to give them five times the positive and negative because research says clinically in your brain, you focus on the negatives. And if you don't give them enough positives, you won't have a bank account in their brain to go to the negatives. So in truthfulness, we had a very structured way to give feedback, but you had to give it. And you could not fire somebody or let them go without a track record of talking to them, giving them an opportunity to succeed, et cetera. But we, every word has examples like that of what does it mean to behave this way? And then the processes behind it back that up. Yeah, that, that, I, I couldn't agree more as well with that. That makes a lot of sense. We do that like in our church culture too, you know, almost unbeknownst, but when you're doing feedback, it's like all about, hey, what's the purpose of feedback? It's like, well, is it to correct the behavior or is it to build someone up, right? Is it to encourage and build them up and make them into a better team member, a better oh. leader? And was that something that would you agree with that? Absolutely. But it's both. And if you don't give, you know, people hate reviews because they tend to go in and just get all the negatives. Well, they should be, first of all, reviews should not be a surprise at the end of the year. It should be consistent feedback. And every time you see a problem, you should go there. But out of all the words, all seven words, patience, kindness, trusting, truthful, unselfish, forgiving, dedicated, I would say the hardest one and the most inconsistent one for me and for many other leaders is to be dreadfully and truthfully honest with people, which is truthfulness. And especially in kind of Christian nonprofits or people want to be too nice. It, you can't be nice and get the performance all the time. You have to hold people accountable and that's a difficult conversation. But of all the words, I think that one needs the most work in most organizations. Wow. Well, let's actually get get to truthfulness. I would be remiss if we didn't have this conversation too. Um, SeaWorld 
SeaWorld had a, of course, you know, when, when Blackfish came out and, you know, there was all this controversy and, and major, major shifts, of course, in the entire industry within the company. It's a billion dollar entertainment company. In the wake of Blackfish and how they're breeding orcas and just that whole narrative, right? That storyline, major changes are happening to the company and the sales and their secret weapon of all things they decide, we're going to bring in not a SeaWorld person. We're going to bring in an outsider someone who knows theme parks, someone who knows how to lead people amazingly well, they bring in none other than Joel Mamby. And when you get appointed as CEO to SeaWorld, this is right after the wake of that. Just so I just want to clarify for everyone, no hate letters. Joel's the guy who went in to help clean this up. <laughs> and I'll say I've always loved SeaWorld. Um, I get the challenges with the practices. And I, I think when you have an organization and you're always looking to make this better, um, and fix things. Hey, like, let's be flexible and fix things. When you come in, I just want to talk about essentially when you come into an organization that is not yours, and you haven't been part of the culture, and things need to change. It's not like, hey, I want to roll out my new initiatives. It's, hey, we have a crisis, we're bringing you in, can you help us through this? What was the initial attitude maybe with all of the team members and the executives around you? Did you have any animosity? Were you welcomed in of like, thank God you're here? Can you tell me a little bit about that, the feeling, the reception, and how you got to work um, in what I would probably call a crisis change? And you might have different words for that. Yeah, well, well, I'd love to. That's almost a whole program in itself. And we, we could do a part two. Yeah, just I mean, throwing you, it out you, there. You bring me back, and I'll I'll do that because there's a lot of crisis leadership lessons out of SeaWorld, both positive and negative. Um, I did come into a, a, an unbelievable crisis. And then actually in Love Works, I have a new chapter all about this. And if you read about all the things we were up against, your head would literally spin. I don't have time to go through them, but we had 10 things of, of which any one of them would have been a crisis in any company, but we had it tenfold. And basically uh, because of the attacks on the animal activists and the blackfish impact and legislation against us, our EBITDA, our cash flow dropped in half at the SeaWorld Parks. And it's a fixed cost business. So we had to do three massive layoffs just to keep the, the ship afloat and keep cash flow going. At the same time, we're trying to shift the focus of the business from all about animal entertainment, which let's face it, animal entertainment is probably not the rising tide of the future. Zoos are under attack. I think there'll always Circuses. be a yeah, everything. The circus closed down. Barnum and Bailey. I knew. I knew their president well. We talked about this often. So we were shifting to more of a cause-oriented company, basically park to planet. You come to SeaWorld, part of your part of your fee of getting in or your ticket will help save the planet. And it it really was good initiatives we were doing. We were the largest rescue organization, marine animal rescue organization in the world. Frankly, always had been. We weren't changing that. We had just never marketed ourselves that way. So there was operational and strategic things. And I would say the hardest thing is to balance both of those day-to-day -day operational issues, losing cash flow, cutting costs at the same time, trying to pivot our vision. And a lot of people are doing that today with COVID-19, right? They've got a keep the lights on at the same time. They've got to pivot our business because things have changed and are changed for the future. I think my advice is just, uh, you know, keep the right people on both sides of that equation. And there are some great operators for today and there are some great visionaries and it won't 
it won't fit your organizational culture, but put teams together that can do both. And as the leader, be on both sides and drive both so you can survive. And I told the board it would take three full years. And in the third year, our stock went up 50%, actually it was up 80% from the time I came in. Unfortunately, they, I got in a disagreement with the board and I was asked to leave just as we were entering the season when everything was starting to take off. And there, the lesson, and I, the lesson for me there is a, a two board members came in that were activist investors. I didn't trust them. They, I knew from the beginning they were going to put their own team in, but I fought and I fought and I tried to stay in hindsight. You know, I, I lost a lot in doing that. I lost my health. Um, I, I got very stressed out. I, I had, I, I will admit I drank too much. I was under too much stress. I was not myself. I was not healthy. My, I had relationship issues ended up, frankly, even losing my marriage, which I hate to even, I hate to even talk about cause it's so painful still, but wow. I, I bring it up. So within six months I had lost my marriage and my, I resigned from SeaWorld and I, and, and the numbers were turning. The numbers were fantastic in that year. So it wasn't a numbers issue. It was a relationship issue. And I, I tell that story, Matt, because I feel part of my mission with the years I have left is talking to bright young folks like you, like your listeners to say, you know, don't screw it up. You know, focus, focus on what's important in your life. And if your family and your marriage are important, then do it and don't let other forces of nature take you away from that. And I let that happen. And I think what drove me is to, I wanted either to be successful or it's, it, I didn't want the negative reinforcement from these people. I didn't want to be not affirmed. I wanted to be successful in this turnaround. And I, I, I did it, but I paid a huge price for it that in hindsight, you know, I wish I hadn't, but I, so I did want to go there and share that for everyone to say, keep focus on what's really important to you and don't let the world's or your own soul go to, I want to be successful. I want to have this accolade because it doesn't matter in the end of the day. Um, and, and you and need I, to only have one versus all of it. You know, can you have a balanced success um, versus like a sacrificial success. And Joel, we have a lot more to get into, um, but I know we're running short on time and I got to let you go. We're coming to the end of this. So guys, the book is Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles for Effective Leaders. This is incredible. I mean, you have everyone from Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A, to Dolly Parton, to, you know, you name it, business owners and and celebrities in the world endorsing the book. Um, it's phenomenal. I'm holding my hands right now. I can't wait to dive a little bit deeper into this, but you can grab that at love works by Joel Mandy, Mandby, <laughs> Mandby.com. It's M A N B Y Joel Mandby.com. You can follow Joel on Instagram and Facebook at Joel Mandby. Um, and of course find out all things Joel at Joel Mandby.com. Um, I know you have a, a, a great gift on there. It's a three-part series on leading in crisis. And certainly, if there's ever been a leader who has understood how to do that with your time at SeaWorld and, and the 25-plus CEO career you've had, um, you're the man for that. Joel, I'm going to ask you right up. We can edit this out if you say no, but can we do a part two? 
Absolutely. I would love to. I really enjoy the conversation. Let's talk about SeaWorld and crisis leadership. I would love that. And then we can actually get pretty deep into the the entire um, your series on crisis leadership. And we can even call it crisis leadership. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Um, Joel, final uh, final question or final uh, gift here as we as we head out. When you look back in your past, if you could change anything over that 25 year CEO career, what would you change? Or would you leave it all the same? It's what I just said. I, I, would, I would make sure that how I felt and my intent with my family was also the impact I had on them. And there's a big difference between intent and impact. And I loved them, but the impact they felt was not that way for a season in my life. And that's the biggest thing I would change. Um, I wouldn't work myself to death over something that in the end of the day didn't, didn't matter in the, in the internal perspective. Don't work yourself to death over what actually doesn't matter eternally. I love that. Joel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I sure appreciate you, my friend. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Matt.